Today, we're finishing up our summer series, Best Supporting Actor, New Testament Edition. This has been a great series. I've really loved it. It's been great when you focus on, you know, the minor players in the story. One of the things that's come out is that we've had a chance to really focus on a lot of the women of the New Testament. And we've seen them in the light of the redemptive body of Christ and the role as partners in ministry and in life. That's been great. And this week, we get to do that again because we're actually looking at the only marriage that's actually focused on in the whole New Testament narrative of the early centuries of the church. Not to say there weren't a lot of them, but this is really the only one that falls into our category of best supporting actors. And the nice thing is it's a really good one. It's a great example. It's the story of Priscilla and Aquila. And we're going to look at it today. It's in Acts chapter 18. It's page 786 in the Bible that's in the Purack. I'd really love for you all to please have the Bible open. We're going to read through the whole chapter together. And then we're going to make a lot of comments off it. But I don't want you to think I'm just sharing some knowledge outside of the Bible. It's all around this story that we're going to uh, dig from. We're going to let Scripture speak. And um, I want to share to you that there's a lot we can learn about Christian marriage through the example of Priscilla and Aquila. And so obviously there's going to be a focus on that here today. But please don't check, check out if you're a single person, uh, unmarried, because what's true of this marriage should be true of all of our lives, whether we're single or married. So there's plenty here for all of us. But it's one of those unique opportunities where in Scripture we get to look at this couple and see what a gospel and cross-focused partnership in marriage looks like. So let's, let's read it together. I'm going to begin reading right at verse 1. Again, page 786, which is Acts chapter 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome, Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul was then able to devote himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. And when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest, very kind of old school way of kind of dismissing someone, and said to them, your blood be on your heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. Crispus the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. And so Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. Now, let's just go down to verse 18 for sake of time. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off because of a vow he had taken. 
they arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews, and when they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it's God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, which was really his home base, uh, the church in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the believers. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. So now we're, we're back at Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John the Baptist. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. I love that word, more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. And when he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. There are several major characters in this and a couple of minor players. Apollos becomes a great sort of second generation teacher and leader of the church. Of course, Paul's journey is what is often the primary focus here, but we're going to just narrow right down and look at Priscilla and Aquila. And what I want to do is to offer you eight observations today. I know, usually just three points in a poem, I know. Eight observations today of a gospel-centered marriage. And the first thing we see when we come to their story is that they were true partners in life and ministry. Now, a few weeks ago, we talked about the plight of women in first century Judaism and in much of the world historically. And this was really a very unique relationship, exceptional to the norm because they were true partners. Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned six times in Scripture and always together. And initially, Aquila's name comes most often first, but eventually Priscilla's name comes first. I'll offer my reasoning why I think that's the case, but my point is that their value is interchanged, and they are always treated as partners, and of course, they're in business together. That's, that's amazing that they're able to work together and to have this great relationship. The second thing we see is that they in, have already endured great hardship. Not only were they partners, they were survivors. When in the early part of this chapter, it talks about a situation that somewhere around A.D. 49, uh, maybe 50, uh, Claudius uh, sent out all the Jews from Rome. Now, it, scholars have different opinions about whether or not these were Jewish Christians who were dismissed because of how the historians refer to the Greek word for Christ in some of the writings. It was either that the Jews were making trouble for Christians who had not yet started being really persecuted in Rome. 
That wouldn't happen for another decade when Nero burns Rome in order to have urban renewal. That's one way to get your will done. Just burn it all down. And then he blames the Christians. And that ushers in the first great season of horrific, violent, bloody, tragic persecution of Christians in Rome. Uh, so it's possible, first of all, that Priscilla and Aquila were God-fearing Hellenistic Jews um, who then would come to Christ in Corinth when they meet Paul. But it's also possible that they were already Christians because we know there were Christians in Rome. Um, and we know that there were Hellenistic Jews who were at Pentecost. And then when the, the first diaspora happens in the book of Acts because of the trouble in, in Jerusalem, um, they returned. And so we know that there were those that had come to faith then. So we don't really know for sure if Priscilla and Aquila were already Jesus followers, but they were devoted God worshipers for sure. Um, and, but the thing I, I want you to see about this is that when Paul meets Priscilla and Aquila, they were refugees. Think about that. They'd been, by persecution, expelled from their country of choice and where they had set up their lives and they had had to come to a foreign place and reestablish themselves and what we're going to see is that God actually uses that in order to prepare them for a few more transplantings and travels along the way but they had survived this difficult season being forced out of their land traveling someplace else and back then it wasn't like Vit and I um, last year traveled all around the United States and whenever we got homesick, all we had to do was go into a mall, you know, right? Or a strip, all the same stores, right? It's very homogenized now. It's very flat, our culture. That was not the case here. So Corinth was a very different place uh, than Rome in a lot of ways. So they were refugees, foreigners, strangers to a degree. And they brought their work with them. Third thing we see about them is that they studied and learned Scripture together. They were partners they were survivors, and together they were learners. When Paul comes, he stays in Corinth. He actually lives with them because Paul also is a tent maker. And so he moves in and they welcome him into their home. So imagine this. Back then, when you were a new believer, and I think that would kind of characterize every believer in that time, they were all reasonably new even though now it was um, you know, 52 AD, the Christian faith had not matured. There weren't online resources. You know, the world's greatest preachers available for you to click and watch. Even the New Testament hadn't been formed yet. They just didn't really have a lot to help them grow. But there was the Apostle Paul who would end up writing the vast majority of the New Testament scriptures. And imagine living with them for a year and a half. See, that's amazing. I, I can imagine not only the amazing gatherings of Christians in Corinth as God blessed and a community was formed. Very exciting. Uh, I, I can experience that because of being a part of the birth of the journey. I mean, those early years were, were just amazing, even as they are now. I, I still feel like we're just getting started. Uh, we're, it's a pretty exciting time, but those were amazing things. The people we were involved in, it was precious times. But then imagine the conversations after everybody left late at night with the, the apostle to the Gentiles. Imagine the dialogues and the debates about Scripture and the Messiah that took place with needles in hand as they worked the camel 
the camel uh, wool material, the camel hair material that made up the tents. And they grew immensely, which then leads to the fourth observation, is that not only did they just take in and grow, but it, it, it was natural for them to then pass that on to others. They themselves became mentors and disciplers of others. Later on in the chapter, and we'll talk about that journey from Corinth to Ephesus in a few minutes, but they're in Ephesus, and Paul has gone on to touch base with his home church and back to Jerusalem, which was still really seen as the, the, the authority of the church at that point still. And he's kind of answering back to them, but they're there. And you can imagine that the work at Ephesus has really just begun. They're laying the groundwork. Paul will return to Ephesus. You'll see the story in Acts chapter 19. And what will usher in are two years of Paul's most, I would argue, Paul's most fruitful and significant ministry. Many, many, it was, it, the whole region, that whole area will come to hear about the gospel. Many churches will be birthed out of that season of ministry. Uh, and that will be very powerful. But right now, Paul has moved on. He hasn't come back to Ephesus. Priscilla and Aquila are there with a small group of believers. And this young gun, this young gun with a Torah shows up, named Apollos. And he's an amazingly gifted teacher, but he came to faith in Jesus, you know, not in the normal way, because he, 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 he was a follower of John the Baptist. John pointed to the Messiah, he understood the scriptures, he, he understood Jesus the Messiah, but he did not understand grace or, or, or the baptism of the Holy Spirit or, or even the baptism of Jesus that we practice, uh, that we believe is believer's baptism that we practice here. And so it's just natural for, for Priscilla and Aquila to open up their home, now not to learn from the one living in their home, but to teach, because they saw value in him. I'm thinking about all the young, powerful preachers who gain a lot of notoriety awful quick today in our culture, because we're a media culture. And they become sort of an authority to themselves. And I'll just tell you, I think many of them, and I get to say this because I'm an old man. And I remember being young and in my 30s. And can I tell you something? I was dangerous in my 30s. Praise God, I didn't do too much damage. And thank God he, he allowed me to grow. And he, I think he did use me during that season as well. But when you become an authority to yourself and you're not formed fully, you get what we're getting now. All these young leaders who have become disenfranchised and are now apostates. They're, and, and they're not only bragging about it, they're pulling people away with them. You see, that could easily have happened to Apollos. But a mature, godly couple, I don't know how old they were. They weren't old, I don't think, but they were established in their faith. And they took him in and they helped make sure, I love the phrase in the NIV, they helped make sure his theology was adequate adequate. And with that, with, that, with that foundation, he then goes off and has a powerful and wonderful ministry. Imagine that. They're not looking for fanfare. There's not going to be any book that Apollos writes where he dedicates it to them. They're going to go back to tent making. And yet they had an impact through this mentoring that took place. Every one of you who are followers of Jesus can help somebody with what you've learned to get to where you are. We all should be doing that. Some of you have been Christians for years, and you've never given out what God's taught you. 
You know what that makes you theologically? Selfish. It's about your growth, your understanding. We should be pouring that into somebody. Who are you pouring it into? What you've learned. You say, I don't know enough. Well, you know something, don't you? That's why you're here. And there's somebody who needs to know it. All right, so they were partners, they were survivors, they were learners, they were mentors. They were hospitable. They used their home for ministry. How do I know that? Well, of course, they had Apollos and Paul in there. And you might argue that there was some personal motivation with Paul, but you can't argue that with Apollos. But there are some glimpses. When we see uh, this couple mentioned in other parts of Scripture, we see indication of this. Paul would write from Ephesus, where we know Priscilla and Aquila are with him, back to the church at Corinth that they shared in together. And in his final greeting in that first epistle, uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 19, he says this to these friends that they all have back in Corinth. Let's say this together. The church in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly, and so does the church that meets at their house. You see what happens here? One of the things that we think theologically, one of the things that scholars think is that by this point, they probably have prospered more in their business that they can now handle a, a home. Remember that in Corinth, it was a pretty large home that they first went into when, when, when the teachings about Jesus the Messiah moved from the synagogue into what, be, what began to become a, a freestanding independent movement known as the Way. And, and Christianity broke away from its roots of Judaism rather than just becoming a sect of Judaism. All that really happens here in this story. Um, and uh, it, it was a large home because God was blessing. There were a lot of people. Well, here's the thing I want you to say. Whether they were in a, the home of, uh, you know, of a recovery period as refugees, a smaller place, they found room for somebody. But then as they blessed, they were able to do more with their home. Those of you that use your homes for ministry, I, I want to tell you, it's not about the size of your home. It's about the size of your heart. <laughs> it's about you being, to bless, being able to bless somebody with that space. That space is as sacred as this space because you're in it, and God owns it, and he wants you to use it to bless others. And I just want to affirm and bless all of those of you here who, in the name of Jesus, open your home to to children who are in the system or to students or to life groups or, or to others who are in recovery. God bless you for that. And may that become more and more the norm of every one of us, that our space is just God's space. It's for him to use, even tiny homes. Right, Rena? Okay. Rena just bought herself one of those honest-to-goodness tiny homes. I got to hear more about it. I want a tour. I know it won't take long, but yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Great. They were partners, survivors, learners, mentors. They were hospitable. Here's the big one I want you to see as you look at their life. Their life decisions were gospel driven. They had a, it wasn't their choice to leave Rome where, where they probably had a very successful business. That wasn't their choice. 
But as they began to see God's call and the call of the gospel and what a cross-centered life looks like, that capacity to just up and go where God leads became normal for them. It wasn't an issue. We already see in here that they leave their business, they leave their friends and go with Paul to Ephesus where because of their presence and their support of Paul, but not just their support of him, but their own giftedness of teaching, uh, they're, they're going to uh, bless a lot of people. But they upped and went. They took their ability to create wealth with them. You know that phrase, tent making, that you hear a lot about missionary work? How many of you have heard that phrase? You have to have been around Christianity for a while. Uh, that's where people, rather than asking for full support, which, by the way, Paul did get, even here, there were those who came and their work allowed him to devote himself 100% to ministry after they came, his partners. Uh, but the word tent-making comes from this story. Going where the gospel calls you and then using your ability to support yourself in whatever way you can. They did that together. I love that thought. We, we, we know it was more than Ephesus. Let, let me tell you. Let me tell you about that. Later on, um, they, uh, they move from... Uh, okay, let me pick up my notes here. Later than this, sometime later than this, while Paul is back in Corinth, he writes a letter to the Christians in Rome we refer to it as the Epistle to the Romans. It's one of the most important books in the New Testament. Well, that's a letter that Paul writes while he's in Corinth to Roman Christians. And again, at the end, he is passing on personal greetings. I want you to see one of the personal greetings that he shares. Romans 16. Let's say this together. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Jesus Christ. They list, list their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Where is this to? Rome. So what do we know happened? At some point, Priscilla and Aquila pick up again for the cause of Christ, take their business back to Rome. Not because business is better there, not because they're not potentially in harm's way because of the persecution they already know, have experienced. They go there for the cause of Christ and to strengthen the believers there in the same way they have been strengthened. I love that. I want you to notice something about this now. Notice how now the phrase later on, the names are flipped here. Now it's Priscilla and Aquila, not Aquila and Priscilla. Do you notice that? That's very countercultural. It's not normal. It speaks to two things. One, their partnership in ministry, especially the fact that Paul refers to them both as his co-workers. But it also speaks to what we believe is the reality that Priscilla had a great gift in terms of spiritual mentorship and teaching. Perhaps was the more gifted in those ways than Aquila, who had his own sets of gifts, but he blessed as well. So please note this. It's very important that when we see Priscilla and Aquila, they both disciple Apollos. They both teach theology to him. And Priscilla seems to be the one 
who takes on more of a role in that particular type of ministry. Some scholars suggest that it was Priscilla who wrote the book of Hebrews. That's scandalous, isn't it? Not really. Not when you get a clearer picture of what men and women in partnership for the cause of Christ are really meant to look like. Thank you for that. Is that my daughter? Yeah, of course it is. <laughs> my daughter accuses me of being a feminist. All I know is in the church there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female. All they're one in Christ. That's what I know. You figure out what that looks like in terms of terms. I call it biblical. All right, and that was free. Point number seven. <laughs> they put themselves in harm's way for the cause of the gospel. Go back to that verse, Dan, that we were looking at just a moment ago from Romans. There's a couple of really important things here. Paul alludes to probably a very specific event in their life that we don't see in the New Testament where Priscilla and Aquila intentionally risk their own necks, their very lives, for Paul's safety. Now, we don't know what that means, and it may have happened more than once, but Paul makes a point of noting it because it's significant because it's one of the ways God preserved him so that he could continue his ministry, which none of us would argue the, the, the impact of, even to us, right? And so, I think that's an important thing for us as American Christians to wrestle with. The fact is, throughout the last 2,000 plus years of church history, more people have lived in harm's way because of their faith than haven't. And we don't quite understand that in America. We think being in harm's way is kind of like being on the, the bad side of the, of the media or the political pundits or, the, or, the, or the, those that, you know, want to hold to an extremely progressive idea socially. We think that's suffering for Jesus' sake. We have no idea what it means to be in harm's way. And actually, I think it makes us a little weak spiritually in our convictions. Um, and so that's something for us to think about. You know, what am I willing? Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. What does that look like for us? For Priscilla and Aquila, it meant to really count themselves as dead to Christ. And, and that leads us uh, to another comment here. When he says, not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Now he's talking about the modern movement that he's a part of. Paul is referred to as the apostle to the Gentiles because he was the one that God used to bring the gospel uh, from being just first to the Jew, but then also to the Gentile, which he says in his own writings, that that was always God's plan. And frankly, that extends right down to you and me today. So I want to suggest that since this is God's word, since it's live and active, it's as though Paul is writing this to you and me when he says, not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles, including the Journey Community Church, should be grateful to them because they had an eternal impact for Christ that you and I are benefiting from. Some of you come from a Jewish heritage, and praise God for that. We're grateful for you. But i got to tell you, I'm grateful 
that Christ became relevant to, to my people as well. And that we sit here together as spiritual children of Abraham and sons and daughters, co-heirs with Christ. Amen to that. When I think about Priscilla and Aquila, um, numbers of people in, in our congregation have come to mind. Those who have shaped their life's choices and used their resources, their skill, even their careers, uh, allowed them to become tools by which God would use them. And some have made significant changes in their life around that. Um, I want to talk about two couples. One of them is here today, and they don't know I'm talking about them, and uh, I'll apologize later. It's Carly and her fiancé, Jonathan, who's here today. Jonathan, raise your hand, buddy. There he is, okay. Carly and Jonathan fell in love at WPI. That's good. So Carly, in the old school, we'd say Carly's getting a dual degree. She's getting... She's also getting her MRS, and, so, and uh, so that's a great thing. But they were struck, you know, Jonathan took a job up in Nashua, and uh, for the longest time they assumed that the church he was a part of up there and the community he was a part of was where they were both going to settle. And now they're preparing for their marriage. They've gone through our marriage uh, preparation class, and, um, and so they're praying now because Carly's in her senior year. They've got to make some decisions. And as they have been praying for what they're going to do, their call, God's call on their heart uh, to be a part of what God's doing here in the journey and in, in Worcester has really become strong. And so uh, I want to just bless Jonathan for his willingness to say, I, 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 I can affirm that. And so we're going to make a conscious choice. I can commute to Nashua. We want to be near our church body and make a difference. So they've made that decision. They're going to shape their life around it. Uh, Carly doesn't know where her job's going to end up being, but they're going to prioritize being on mission where God's called them. Isn't that something that we should bless and encourage? But I did get permission to tell you about Gus and Debbie Piazza, who most of you don't know because they're part of our Quinsig Village launch team. Uh, I first met Gus and Debbie when they were up here visiting with um, Debbie's uh, sister and brother, who also their family attends here, um, and uh, have watched God work in their heart and come to really admire um, how they shape their decisions around mission and gospel. Deb and Gus came to Christ as adults. Debbie was raised uh, in the Jewish faith and tradition and came to Christ out of that. Gus, uh, probably a hippie, you know, back, that was that period. Uh, back down in New Jersey, my old stomping grounds, the Corinth of America, we'll call it. <laughs> and they came to Christ. <laughs> you had to be around Asbury Park in those days to know what I'm talking about. They came to Christ through the ministry of a real discipling pastor. The church was never large because he was so committed to deep, passionate discipleship. And so they were, they were a, a small gathering, small group of believers who, who a Paul-like person poured into their lives for numbers of years. They were deeply rooted uh, in their faith. And eventually they, they caught wind of a, a vision to 
plant churches, before church planting was such a big deal, before the journey uh, was planted, uh, nine years ago now this October, uh, to be a part of a movement of church planting, but it would require moving to Rhode Island to leave the Garden State. And it is a Garden State, by the way. Those of you that only ever just go through the turnpike will never know that. Because the per... You know what's that? That's Silver Queen Corn. Ron's a Jersey boy. Any other Jersey people here? I'm not convincing you at all, am I? The few of us know. And so they moved. They moved a successful plumbing business. They shut it down. They moved to Rhode Island to be a part of this movement. And for uh, a long season, were part of three or four different church plants, opened up their home to ministry, discipled young Christians, shaped their life around mission. They had skills, so they put them to work. They built a business there. They took what jobs they could. But mostly they were about God's work, the kingdom of God and the gospel. I love that. and, And we've now benefited from that because God has moved them with the vision that we have of blessing neighborhoods in our city, being incarnational, not just wanting to redeem souls for heaven, but to redeem culture in Jesus' name, that kingdom idea of the gospel that we believe Jesus taught. Well, that moved uh, Gus and Debbie. So believe it or not, last year they moved to Worcester. They upped again and moved to Worcester and then rented for a while trying to figure out what to do and where they're going to be. And they helped us launch the church and have been a big part of that, that church body and that movement. Well, recently, Gus had to make some work decisions. He's been commuting to Springfield. He's pouring into because he's mission-focused, he's pouring into some young, underprivileged men there, trying to teach them uh, the business of plumbing to try to get their life going, and you know, he loves them. Uh, so where does this go? When, when, God, when you love the people you're working with, Priscilla and Aquila love the people in Rome, love the people in Corinth, what do you do about that? And, and how do you make choices? And so a job opportunity came up, and believe it or not, Gus has now become a teacher at a local technical high school. He's never done that before. He's got to get certified. But God opened this job to him, and he's taking it so that he can pour into lives that he can then now bring to our church. And he's done it so he can be more local, not be spending three hours a day driving, so that he can use that time for the kingdom. And rather than buying the home of their dreams that they could afford, they bought a a home that's adequate, that's right down at the end of Greenwood Street. So they could be in their neighborhood for the gospel. Deb's a nurse. She can get work anywhere. Right? Gus is doing what he can to provide for themselves because they're excited about being a part of God's kingdom. Isn't that amazing? I love that. And I want to suggest that mentality should not be something that we just admire from afar, but I think that what we see in them and in Priscilla and Aquila is what the Christian attitude ought to be. So often we view our Christianity as an opportunity to succeed at a different dream, the American dream, which is very different than God's plan for your life. They're not the same thing. 
God's plan for your life is far better because it's one where you're meant to have eternal impact and that everything you're part, everything you can do, everything you've learned should be brought to bear. Your work for the kingdom is not separate from all that. All of that is to serve your work for the kingdom. And to the degree that all of us aspire to that and make our decisions about that, we will be a church where God moves. Could you have imagined a greater adventure in life than the one Priscilla and Aquila had? What about your adventure? What are you willing to risk for the kingdom? What has God given you by way of skill and capacity? And how is he calling you to participate and join something for the kingdom? I think if some of us really started paying attention to God's leading, it would mean we'd be sending you someplace else. And I hate that thought. (laughs) I want to see more people come to Worcester who love Jesus. Worcester needs us. But God needs you where he's placed you. And maybe that's what you should be doing. And we'll bless you. We'll bless you and send you out. And when I write my epistle, I'll say hello to you in my final greetings. No, you know that's never going to happen. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table today. What perfect timing it always is when we do this. The Lord gave us this beautiful gift to come back and to reset ourselves around the most important act of history, the reason for which he came, which was to sacrifice himself on the cross for us. I want Dan to throw up that last slide, Jesus' own words in the Gospels. Let's say this together. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake, for the gospel, will save it. I want to suggest to those of you that know Jesus that one of the benefits of this gift of returning to the cross through the Lord's table is to constantly reset our perspective to being cross-focused, cross-driven, gospel-focused. And so I think it would be completely appropriate, given what we've looked at today and the topic, that as we celebrate the death of our Lord, as we take the bread, which, by the way, all of you can use because we get the safest possible bread for all dietary needs, you take that bread and the server will remind you audibly that it represents the body of Jesus, which was battered and broken for you. And then you'll take it and you'll dip it in the cup. And the server will remind you that it represents the blood of Jesus, the shedding of which brought the forgiveness, the capacity for the forgiveness of our sins in Christ. And this time, as you take, contemplate your dreams, your current direction in life, your priorities, and recenter them on the cross. And remember, you are either pursuing life on your own priorities and just asking God to bless them, or you've given it all to God and you're living as crucified to Christ and knowing that that's really the the, the path to the life God has for you. So let's let's do that as we celebrate the Lord's table. I want to encourage you, let's just take a, a moment or two silently as the worship team comes and prepares to lead us in singing, 
Let's just silently think about these ideas, our dreams, our passions, and the direction and the motivation. And as we come to the Lord's table, let's think about how God might be calling us in a fresh way. And then I'll pray, and we invite you to just come and partake, come up the center aisles, exit the side aisles. No need to rush. We'll, we'll be singing a couple songs, so we don't need to jam the front. But you just come. If you can't move, my wife, Vitalina, will be happy to serve you where you're seated. Just raise your hand when she looks your way, and she'll bless you. But let's just start just a few moments where the Holy Spirit just speaks to us about what we've learned today. Father, as we come to this table, symbolically, this, this great but very simple ceremony that you passed on to us, two very common elements, the stuff of sustenance that now we rem remind us of the source of our eternal life, may we reset ourselves, our thinking, our hearts around the cross. May it be true of us, as Paul would say, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. And the life that I live in this human form, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen.